Hello, my friend. Welcome to Something for Everybody, the podcast to help those who listen feel more loved and connected through story sharing. My name is Aaron Mashbitz, and my mission is to help you realize your potential and capabilities through conversations and deep insights so you can make your prior best your new baseline. Brooke Seam joins the podcast this week, and Brooke is the author of an incredible memoir called May Cause Side Effects. And in this conversation, we speak deeply about deprescribing from psychiatric drugs. We talk about grief. We talk about depression, and we talk about current mental health trends. In other news, this podcast is brought to you by Amare. Amare is the mental wellness company, and I use their products every single day. So click the link in the show notes, scroll through their products, see which ones might be best for you and your wellness journey. And then once you get to check out, use code everybody for $10 off your entire order. Now on to episode 192 of Something for Everybody with Brooke Seam. friend and welcome to something for everybody my name is Aaron Mashbitz Brooke welcome to the show hi thank you yeah I'm excited to have this conversation and before we get into really the meat and bones of what we're going to talk about probably in the next hour I have a very important question to ask you and that is how are you doing like actually how are you doing me oh I'm good um I was telling you before I had some dental work yesterday so I'm very aware of my mouth and my teeth and the way my mouth feels and uh that's a little weird it's kind of screwing with me but other than that we're good pretty good today how are you how am i i am a little worn out because my fiance has me training for this fitness competition (laughs) (laughs) um and it has a lot of running which my body is not used to but surprisingly i'm i'm adapting well as a as a former baseball player like i told you before we were starting recording we're not used to running three miles we're like 90 feet here maybe 180 feet potentially take a little break this and that so um but it's been that's been cool but other than that yeah i mean i uh people always ask me that question because i ask it a lot and Mm -hmm. i say i've never had it this good and i think when people usually say like live in the dream or never had it so good they're normally not telling the truth Mm -hmm. but in my case like i am Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think sometimes it throws people off so I always find that interesting. It's great. Um, have you read Born to Run? I have not. I would recommend reading it ASAP if you're starting to run longer distances. Yeah, is running part of your fitness routine? It is uh, now because of that book. I had always, I love walking. I love being outside. Yet I couldn't figure out why I couldn't run without pain. Mm-hmm. And this has been a you know decades long confusion for me. And then I pulled that book off a shelf a couple months ago just because I was bored and jet lagged and needed something to read. And I was staying at a friend's apartment and it has it transformed my running. And now, I mean, I just went for a run this morning. I run multiple times a week. I'm doing distances I never thought I could do. And in part because of being inspired by the book, in part because of some of the practical, the practical nuggets you can gain from it. It'll, it'll change your running, trust me. Hmm. I may have to check that out because I need any insight that I can gain. So <laughs> It's also a really good read. It's a great story. So you'll be entertained the whole time. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's make a hard a hard <laughs> U-turn here, left turn here as a great transition that I'm doing right here. But <clears throat> the first question I wanted to ask you is, is I think about this a lot and when, with my own personal story. And we may get into that if it's, if it's relevant. But is this distinction between grief and depression. In your experience, how do you parse those two? <laughs> I actually, I had a conversation with a psychiatrist a couple months ago who worked really hard to tell me that grief and depression were two completely different things. And I I find that to be just so completely wrong. So I, my father died when I was 15. And, you know, not every Father's Day, but this year, 20 some odd years later, I had a real rough time with it. And I went through another cycle of the grieving process. And according to the psychiatrist I was speaking to, he says that depression begins when the the event ends, right? If the, the inciting event that has caused the grief is over and has passed, 
well then any experience around it is depression not grief which I, again i just think is such bullshit because 20 some odd years later i was crying in a coffee shop because the coffee was eight dollars I, was, I wasn't crying because the coffee was eight dollars i was crying because i remember when my father got upset and threw one of his kind of amusing little tantrums when coffee went to two dollars back in the 90s and that's the way grief is so i mean depression can be part of it but i think they're very intertwined hmm. do you have a do you think sadness and depression are different answer this in a different way by saying that I think the term depression has become a catch-all term for feeling down, mm. for feeling dissatisfied, for feeling sadness, for feeling grief, for feeling stuck, for feeling frustrated, for having low energy, for not eating enough, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have any nuance. I think it's lost all meaning. I think that maybe there was a point in time when you know, kind of the full body experience of depression is what people might have said is the difference between just being emotionally sad and being physically depressed. But we can't measure this. There's no blood test to measure someone's level of depression. So it's all created through the experience that each individual has. And we can't compare one person's experience to another. Uh, but I really think the word itself has been completely hijacked and now no one's no one's sad anymore because everyone just identifies as depressed i i agree with you there i think it has become less potent less powerful mm -hmm. right because if you really are depressed like that's a full body experience that's sort of taking taking you over like mm -hmm. food doesn't taste the same you don't want to get out of bed you don't feel like brushing your teeth. Maybe you don't even want to wash your body. Like there's there's varying degrees of depression, of course, but like really actually feeling depressed, like not really based on like a like a certain circumstance that you can say pinpoint this is why I'm depressed. Like that sort of depression, mm -hmm. I think that one has lost its feeling because like people just use it again, like you're saying, so just so loosely, like ah, if I don't get this job, I'm gonna get depressed. Like I don't are you? Are mm -hmm. you just gonna be sad? Are you going to feel a little heartbroken? Are you going to feel a little rejected? Like those things are completely different. And I think having a larger vocabulary of words to describe what we're feeling, like the name it, sort of tame it type of thing is important. But I think grief falls in there very interestingly um, because, you know, similar to your situation, I lost my sister. Now it's five years. And just like you, I'll, I'll listen to a song on the radio uh, her favorite artist was Mandy Moore, and like mm -hmm. I'll just listen. Like Mandy Moore doesn't come on the radio, and I don't listen to the radio, so that doesn't really make sense. But like when I specifically yeah. choose to play that song, sometimes yeah. the playlist makes me happy, and I think mm -hmm. all these great things about her. Sometimes it makes me bawl my eyes out, and I have to pull over on the side of the road. Like grief is like an interesting thing because you never know when it's going to hit you, and people say that you you move on from it. I just think that's a lie. I think you try to move forward with it, you know, and try to navigate the waters as they come. You know, some days. I'm feeling great. Then on those days that I do feel great, the next day I might feel guilty for feeling great because my mm -hmm. sister was such in a yeah. bad place. And so it's 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 interesting. I never felt depressed from it because that word never popped into my mind because mm -hmm. my sister, she she ended her own life. So mm -hmm. these sort of psychiatric drugs and mental illness and bipolar disorder is very personal to me. It's really why I wanted to talk to you about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I saw her be actually depressed in the pits of her own hell, like in the darkness and like, how do you pull yourself out of that? So for me, that, that never clicked because I wasn't that way. I just knew I was really mm -hmm. fucking sad. Like, mm -hmm. shit, I'm never yeah. going to be able to watch a movie with my sister again or all of the cool things we do. She's never going to be able to watch me wrestle again or whatever it is or all of this stuff. So, so trying to decipher between those two words has been interesting for me, but also trying to gain a larger vocabulary for actually the things that I'm feeling yeah. in this moment has been helpful, um, at least in my experience. Yeah. I very often like to ask people if they are, if I'm, if I'm talking to them and they're sharing a little bit of their story and they, you know, given the work that I do in, in the world of antidepressant withdrawal and over medication of children and grief and book writing and all these things, they come to me and they, they, they always use the words anxiety or depression, right? Or 
all these very medical words. And if I ask them what they're feeling, those are the only two words they can ever seem to really find. So then if I say, okay, I need you to explain what you're feeling or what's happening without using the word depression or anxiety. And every time someone starts telling me the real story and you start to get a root into why they're feeling the way they're feeling. And by understanding that you can also start to, you know, see a way out in many cases. But I, again, I think these words, the way they have been usurped by society, the way they're almost weaponized from the medical perspective, or even from an identity perspective, it can be really difficult for people to see a way out or to see beyond this diagnosis that they've received, especially if they've created an identity around it. Yeah, I think this is one of the sort of the downfalls of the open conversation around mental health on social media. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, because the anti stigma, the anti stigma campaigns, you mean? Yes, many those. of which are started and funded by the pharmaceutical companies, which yeah, clearly is a thing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, so it just you know, obviously there needs to be like just a general awareness that everyone has mental health. Like that's not like, mm -hmm. like I think also people are scared of that term. Like mental health doesn't mean that you're a psychopath or you're crazy. It just means that you think, feel, and act. Like you have a brain and it's connected to your body and it's how you move through the world. Okay, so what mm -hmm. are some things that I can do to just like take care of that generally speaking? Okay, I can eat, I can move, I can sleep, I can think, I can build community, all of those things. And then it turns into like this whole social media thing where people who aren't credible to speak about these things are using therapy talk and therapy speak and these words. And then kids who are very impressionable like you were when you first got on these drugs are mm -hmm. now claiming this is who they are at their core. I am this thing yeah. and that's it. And it also has to do with like a sense of belonging. Like if I'm 12 years old and all my friends yeah. say they're depressed, I want to be depressed because I want to yeah. I, I have friends. Like, yep. So it's it's so interesting and, you know, it gets a little complicated, but I think that's been one of the, at least in my looking at it, downfalls of the of the conversation around mental health. Mm -hmm. A lot of positives and you know, a lot of people are seeking more help and things like that, but, you know, pros and cons with everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned, uh, used the word credible, because I also find that people who have credentials can be incredibly detrimental to the conversation as well, because it just continues to medicalize everything. It uh, vulnerable people can really get caught in bad situations. You know, there's there's plenty of good practitioners out there, but that doesn't mean there aren't plenty of crappy ones too, who are negatively impacting the way the world is thinking about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been almost exactly one year since your book, your memoir, mm -hmm. came out. May cause side effects. So congratulations on Thank that. You. That's incredible. Uh, what what things in your life have changed? <laughs> uh since the book came out there's been a lot of change in the past year since the book came out some of it wasn't connected to the book itself but you know i so i started writing may cause side effects in 2017 i you know the book is about the year i spent in severe antidepressant withdrawal i had been medicated for 15 years at that point from 15 to 30 I was first put on a cocktail anti of antidepressants as a kid, and then it, it didn't really go monitored or, and it wasn't changed for the next 15 years. And when I turned 30, I was deeply depressed. I was having a lot of suicidal ideation, and it just sort of dawned on me that I shouldn't be this depressed for someone on this many psychiatric drugs, and so something wasn't working. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I needed to get off the cocktail I was on and discover my baseline in order to know how to move forward. And when I went to my doctor and expressed that I was going to do that and wanted to do that, she told me to stop taking one of my drugs, cold turkey, because I was on the lowest dose available on the market. And from her perspective, she couldn't prescribe a lower dose. The problem is, is that that drug was Effexor XR. It's a really powerful SNRI, which has, is known to be extremely difficult to get off of and pulling someone off cold turkey, even at low doses, can cause some pretty horrific withdrawal symptoms, which is what happened to me. And it lasted for well over a year. And I didn't know that this was fairly common. Uh, it wasn't really reported on. At the time, there wasn't very much talk 
about it. This was in 2016, 2017. But then I started to see just a little bit of changes in the literature in the scientific literature and a little bit of a tone shift in mainstream media and a few people coming more public with stories that were similar to mine. And I started to realize that this wasn't rare. And now we know that over half of people who are on antidepressants will experience withdrawal when they try and come off of them. And of that group, 25% of it is severe. So this is a lot of people who are going to experience this if they try and come off their drugs uh, too quickly, or sometimes it doesn't even matter how fast you go. But once I realized that, I started to write the book to help prescribers and patients and parents understand what withdrawal can look like so they can better support the person going through it and also avoid misdiagnosis. Because what's really common is if someone starts changing their psychiatric drugs or coming off of them, it can produce such intense side effects, both uh, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, psycho-emotional, all that intrusive thoughts, that it can look like other diagnosable mental illnesses according to the DSM. So you have people who, you know, were put on some anti-anxiety or antidepressant five years ago because they were going through a hard time at their job. And then when they try and come off of it, the next thing you know, they're having such severe symptoms that they're being diagnosed as bipolar or schizophrenic. And they just end up in this cycle where it gets worse and worse and more and more drugs get piled on when all that was happening is that they were having a severe reaction to a low dose of a common antidepressant that they were told should be safe. And it happens all the time. So that's what my work is about now. That's what the book is about. It's about my year. And so as far as how th things have changed over the past year, I just talk about this a lot more. Uh, my my DMs and my email is, is much busier with strangers reaching out to either share their stories or ask for advice. You know, I'm I'm connected to a really amazing and impressive group of researchers around the world who are every day getting stronger and stronger research supporting uh, these withdrawal theories. We know people aren't making it up now. And I'm just working to help inform people about this experience so they don't go through what I did and hopefully don't end up being treated for illnesses they don't have. Hmm. What was your initial visit with your doctor like when you were 15, if if you remember that? Like, was there a conversation? Did the doctor ask what was happening? Or was it just like, here's some medication, you're depressed? Mostly the latter. I had ended up at a child psychiatrist after a few sessions with the child psychologist, who that the child psychologist, you know, we were not a good fit. It didn't go well. And so she called my mom up because I was 15 at the time and said, what Brooke needs is a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. I'm diagnosing a depressive and anxiety disorder and recommending medication. And my mother, who was also grieving the loss of my father, and she's not a doctor. She just followed the advice. And so I ended up in the child psychiatrist's office. And I kind of remember him saying, well, it seems like you've been through a lot lately. Let's see if we can help with that. And then that's when the prescription slips just appeared. And that was it. It's it's quite infuriating to to hear that, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like there's there is a portion of people who do benefit from the usage of these medications. Mm -hmm. But have we exhausted every other measure that's potentially beneficial for someone grieving or dealing with loss or having some mental health issues? Like, are we trying to prescribe them? other things like how they eat, how they move, how they sleep, how they think, their social connections, love, how they feel about themselves. All of these things have to be talked about and exhausted over a long period of time. And then maybe after all of this work, internal, external work, like excavating all the things you possibly can, especially with a 15-year-old who you can mm -hmm. see for a while until maybe you go off to college and you had three years of someone trying to help you figure out who you were and how to navigate your grief. And maybe I think about my dad when I'm walking to my class. Okay, how do I calm myself down? How do I take a few deep breaths? Okay, this is fine. This is normal. 
Okay, all of those things, great. And then if you maybe exhausted all of those measures and nothing seems to be working and actual severe depression seems to persist, then potentially maybe we can get you on some antidepressants or something like that. Like, but that's like all the way down the road mm -hmm. after like you're actually doing your job as a psychiatrist or a psychologist, <laughs> like having conversations with people. And so that's where I, I get a little frustrated. Uh, but I'm sure it's even more frustrating for you as someone who literally felt this in their body for 15 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even know what I don't think it's a word in the English language that fully encompasses all the emotion I felt around this. But that's certainly not what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I, you know, all you have to do is take one look at the prescription rates in a little graph that just keeps going up, up, up. And you know that that's not, that's not what's happening, especially when our rates of dis distress and suicide are, and people on disability due to mental illness are also uh, going up. It's not, it's not working. You would think that if this strategy, this chemical front line was working, you would see those numbers go down. And that's not what's happening. So that stands to reason that we really need to reevaluate this. Yeah. How would you reevaluate it? What would you do? What would be your first step? You know, I, the, the answer that I wish I could wave a magic wand and, you know, be the answer that, that the, the really, the true answer is that you need to wave a magic wand and stop people from hurting each other. Like it, it and I don't just mean kind of, you know, random acts of violence, but the, what people the way people are people are deeply lacking in love and acceptance and just the dynamics between families and people aren't happy and so if you could somehow wave a magic wand and create a society that actually supported human life and human spirituality i use that word very loosely just you know being connected with nature and getting rest and good food and <laughs> all that stuff then that would be the answer if we could just kind of live in a you know more utopian society but that's not going to happen anytime soon so more practically i think that the first thing that really needs to happen is people need to be a lot more aware of the research around these drugs and what the research actually says and doesn't say you know for example if consistently when you look at all the research that we've had for the past three decades, basically, over and over again, you, you see a number of about 15%. And that means that roughly 15% of people with severe depression, or 15% of people, it's also hard because the way the research is structured, like people get weeded out, but antidepressants are, are only really effective in about 15% of patients, and they typically have severe depression, right? So that's low. It's a lot lower than just going to your GP and, you know, getting a prescription because you're feeling blue, right? So if you start with just the research of where it's actually effective, and then you look at how effective it is, and then you look at people with mild to moderate depression, and you see that, oh, it's not actually effective at all. In fact, the placebo usually outperforms it. Meditation outperforms it. Exercise outperforms it. Eating well outperforms it. And you couple that with the huge amount of side effects that people are experiencing that they may not even know they're experiencing. I know that I was experiencing a huge amount of side effects without knowing it because I was in the middle of puberty when I was put on these drugs. So all the sexual side effects, for example, the low libido and you know the PSSD, the post-sexual or post-SSRI sexual dysfunction that people experience. If you're put on as a kid or a teenager and you're developing that side of you, and it's affected by a drug you're taking, you have no idea what's normal for you or what, you know, what you should or shouldn't be feeling or attraction levels and all of that. That's, that's a, that is arguably the most human animal thing we do. And that gets messed with with people really early on. And that's going to affect all your relationships down the line it, and uh, let alone have long-term side effects. Right. So that's just one example of, side effects that I certainly wasn't told about. And I think most people really aren't. Um, you know, even I think just basic information about how these drugs get approved really changes people's perspective. You know, the FDA 
has to requires two uh, two research studies, two clinical trials from the pharmaceutical companies in order to approve a drug. However, there's no limit on the amount of trials that they can do to get statistically or clinically significant result. So Lamictal, it's, an, uh, it's, a, it's for, used for bipol- bipolar disorder. It had five trials. Three of them showed a negative or no benefit or the drug was not effective, and two said that it had some benefit. So they just submitted the two to the FDA, and that's how it's approved. But that also says that 60% of the trials failed. Mm -hmm. But we don't know that. I mean, you can get that information through the Freedom of Information Act. But who's going to do that? You just see the advertisement on TV. So I think if just the general public was a little more aware of this stuff, then they would at least be more informed to make a decision because we're really told that these are as innocuous as an Advil when that's just not true. Yeah. And we're also told that they're going to, quote unquote, fix everything. Yeah. You know, and then I don't have to do anything else outside of this thing, mm-hmm. which is which is never true with anything that's good for you. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's why there's the things that you mentioned, like eating well, moving well, sleeping well. Think that's why they all go together. Right. Um, but. W- <sighs> yeah. They're not going to make that information available, though, because then more people would stop taking those drugs and they would make less money. So, <laughs> well, I mean, it, the information is available. I think a lot of this. this it's such a perfect storm because. The way information is passed on to us now is so quickly and we are so easily constantly in the, you know, we're constantly being sold to or constantly receiving advertisements of one way or another and input. And it it makes it very difficult because the brain's so, you know, we have so much information coming at us. It's very difficult to know what's true. And, And even the word truth is kind of a terrible word to use because what's true for one person could be untrue for somebody else. But it's difficult to know what to pay attention to. And then it's difficult to have the cognitive space to go out and search for your own information when you're exhausted from your job or just from being, you know, advertised to all day long. Um, But on the other hand, we have the Internet at our fingertips. All of this information is completely available. There are. It takes one Google search to learn this stuff as well. So I just unfortunately think that the patient needs to take a lot more control and needs to be in a lot more, a lot more proactive about their own health than we ever needed to, because not only is there just so much more out there, but the medical system in this country is a mess. These poor doctors, you know, most of them got into medicine to do good, not to hurt people. But they're so bogged down by the insurance system. They're understaffed. They they are required to code in order to get paid. So you can't go into a psychiatrist's office and say, my dad died. That, there's no code for that. They have to say, you're depressed just in order, and we treated it in order to get reimbursed. You know, your, your dad died. You have grief. You need time is not reimbursable. But again, people don't know this. So they walk in thinking... I don't feel well a doctor's going to help me without knowing that there's this huge foundation underneath that appointment that is actually dictating the treatment they're going to get before they even walk through the door. That's why that's why this is so important, right? Peeling back the layers so that people are uh are informed, are informed and take can take responsibility and ownership over their health, uh, especially when the the painful unavoidable sort of tragic moments happen in our life like we can we can do something about it and we can trust the people that are supposed to help us but also as my dad always says trust but verify and i think that's a good (laughs) rule of thumb that's a good rule of thumb and it's very easy to make this sound you know super anti-doctor or um all doom and gloom but i also really see there's a huge benefit to this as well right i mean if there's so much information out there that if you can understand that you know your body better than anybody else, certainly better than someone who you've spent 10 minutes with one time in an appointment, right? If you can kind of come to the table and say in a respectful way, like, look, I understand 
what pressures you're under as a medical professional. I have done this research because I want to make sure that we make the right choice for me. Here's the information. What do you think about this? Can we have a conversation? Like, if they're defensive or they're dismissive, to me, that is a sure sign to run away and get a second opinion. Because a really good doctor will will say one of two things. They will say, yes, let's let's consider this. Let's learn about this. Let's let's see what's right for you. And they'll work with you. And another sign of a good of a good doctor, I think, is someone who says, I don't know. Let me look into that. Right? They are acknowledging that they are not God and they don't know everything. And they are saying, you're bringing something to me that we need to think about, but I need to take, to take the time to learn about it. These are, these are two great signs. And so if you have a doctor who's doing that, then by all means, keep seeing them, keep working together. Just, just really consider your options and become empowered. And that, that, that makes people feel purposeful. It gives them confidence. It's, it's good. Yeah. The I don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, the I don't know thing is, uh, is really the mark of some of the smartest people I, yes. I know. Yes. You know, I, I listen to Tim Ferriss a lot. He's my favorite podcaster. Yeah, mine too. And all he does is say like, dude, I don't understand. Can you please explain that better? Because, you know, yeah. he's having the smartest people in the world on his podcast. Yeah. And that's just the mark that you're actually paying attention to someone. You can admit that you're just a human person who doesn't know everything because yeah. it's literally impossible. Um, and you're like, I'd love to learn more about it because I'm curious about my patient. And I actually do care because I think doctors like, in their heart, they wouldn't go through all of this mm -hmm. stuff to become doctors if they didn't really actually yeah. care. So I do think they care. They just have so much like you're talking about that they have to worry about that it becomes this very quick, mm -hmm. like thing that they just want to get in and out. But really, if yeah. like you bring this information like you're talking about, and you're like, doctor, I've been reading about it, I've been thinking about it, I'm trying to take ownership over my health and my life, but I've been feeling this way for like a long time. And I'm not sure why. Here's what I think. What are your expert opinions on this? And they have, they're saying exactly what you're saying. One of two things like, oh, this is what I think. Let's further explore it. Or I'm not sure. Let me talk to my colleagues or see what the research says. And then boom, why don't you come back and we'll figure it out. Like, that's awesome. That's a beautiful yeah. relationship right there. Mm -hmm. That's, I mean, that's how all good relationships work, whether a friendship, romantic, doctor, patient, all of these things, right? It's about reciprocity, communication, being able to cooperate and negotiate and all of those things. So that's really important. Yeah. I agree. The smartest people I know too, like the, all the experts, the true experts I know say, I don't know a lot more than they say. I know the answer because the right. more you know about something, the more you realize you don't have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Cause you just get going deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I don't know. I like, mm -hmm. so it's great. <clears throat> but, um, take me, take me back to, you're 30 years old and you're you're contemplating and thinking about suicide and then you have this sort of revelatory experience that you know maybe this is not what i'm supposed to be doing like what was how were you feeling lead up to that was like it just a moment in time like how, how can you explain that well i i had at that point i had been depressed for 15 years you know and i had been on this the same cocktail of antidepressants and i just thought well, if I'm this depressed on these drugs, then without them, it's going to be, it's going to be a mess. Um, that's kind of was the, the, the thought process through most of that experience. But then again, the suicidal ideation, it started to get worse, or at least it started to get more stronger. I mean, it was always, it was there for so long that I didn't even notice it. It never really felt dangerous, if that makes sense. It just, it was so normal because it was this kind of insidious thing that had crept in and then it just was there. It coexisted alongside of me. So it just, it didn't feel like a big deal. And I also was so numbed out from, from these drugs that I really had no emotional affect for anything. So I don't really think I was capable of feeling alarmed by my own thoughts or really self-aware or critical of them at all. They, they, it was just there. But I had a, I had a little habit of, and I, st I still kind of do, of, of counting things in order to ground emotions in numbers because it just sometimes emotions and things that were so big I couldn't wrap my head around. And so I would find ways to count them in order to make me understand it a little bit more. And so one of the things that I had, I had realized is I had 
At one point, I sat down on my couch and just was passing the time. I calculated the number of days I'd been alive. That was easy to do. And then I calculated the number of days since my dad had died. And then I realized that because I was turning 30 and he died when I was 15, I was rapidly approaching a time in my life when I was going to have spent more than half of my life without him than I did with him. And that to me felt really significant for some reason. And at the same time, I realized, well, if I'm about to have spent half my life, more than half my life without my father, I was medicated right around the time he died. So that means I'm starting to go into a a chunk of my life where I will have been medicated on psychiatric drugs for longer than I wasn't. And that felt really uncomfortable because one, I was not doing well. And two, it just, there was something intuitive in me that just felt like I shouldn't need this amount of pharmaceutical intervention to exist. And because, you know, humans have survived for so long without this stuff so why why is this why why am i under the impression that i i need this and so at the same time that i was kind of thinking about all these things and swirling these numbers in my head i got this completely random out of the out of the blue opportunity to travel the world for a year in this social experiment <laughs> and I was also having memory problems. So there was a lot going on at once. Uh, I was having short-term memory issues and they were being confirmed by my business partner at the time. Also my mother, just things like we'd have a conversation and then, you know, a day or two later, they would reference the conversation or something that I was supposed to have done. And I had no recollection of any of it. And I was starting to put together that this might have had something to do with the long-term use of the antidepressants because cognitive memory loss or cognitive impairment and memory loss is a side effect. So that started to just concern me because I was 30 and having, you know, like <laughs> senior moments. Uh, and also I said, well, if I take this opportunity to travel, which to me was like a parachute out of the life I'd created, which I was not happy in, then I was worried that I would forget the whole thing, which didn't, <laughs> who wants to, you know, travel and forget it. So that didn't feel good. And then logistically, I was also not going to be able to take the volume of drugs I was taking at that point because I was on two psychiatric drugs and four other drugs to combat the side effects caused by the psychiatric drugs. So I literally would have had a suitcase of drugs that a pharmacy wasn't going to give me and I wasn't going to be able to reliably get around the world. And I just could like, I probably couldn't even take some of that stuff over borders. So I was just kind of like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> we need to change something. So that's when I saw my psychiatrist and she pulled me off the effects of cold turkey. And, you know, the whole topic of the book happened. Um, but it was, it was a very, it was sort of practical decision making. It was just like, well, this can't keep going the way it's been. So we need to make a change. However, I had no concept that it would so radically that, that I would go into withdrawal and that withdrawal would be so, so awful and change the course of my life. Did you, did you end up traveling the world? I did while I was in withdrawal. It was the worst. <laughs> I mean, wow. I, I don't, I don't regret it. I was very lucky to have been in some of the places I was, but this was not an Elizabeth Gilbert eat, pray, love experience. This was, this was, uh, feeling very vulnerable in some less than romantic places and just kind of wondering if I was going to make it out. Um, but on the other hand, there was a, there's an immediacy to traveling in the way I was, which is I was, you know, I was with a group of, they, they started off as strangers, but uh, we, we lived, we had our own apartments. We lived alone, but we would stay in a place for a good five weeks. So you really settled in to wherever, whatever country you were in and you were kind of living there and it forced you to get your bearings. Find where you're going to go to a grocery store. Where is there a gym you could find? You know, you couldn't just eat at restaurants and be on vacation the whole time because it was a year. I was working. It just, you had to figure out how to live your life somewhere else. And because of the immediacy of that, I found that it, was a very quick and effective way to make me realize that the problem was me. 
the whole time I had thought that the problems in my life were because my dad died or because my business partner and I didn't get along or the fact that New York City was expensive or I couldn't find anyone I liked to date. I mean, it was all somebody else's problem or some, the situation. It was never me. It was never my approach or my perspective. But then when I was traveling in a different place every month and I had, so, you know, I was traveling in a different place every month with none of my creature comforts, with none of the people who I had decided were a problem back in New York where I lived, without my family, you realize really fast when you have the same problem in Malaysia that you do in Cambodia two months later, the only consistent here is you. <laughs> I couldn't blame anyone else for my issues with being alive. And that was such a gift because it allowed me to isolate variables and and work on these issues in a very acute way in a very efficient way and I, I think that's part of the reason why I recovered as quickly as I did you know quickly being relative it was still well over a year of withdrawal but I, I came out the other side a completely different person because I was forced to what did you learn about yourself what, what was the hardest thing to come to terms with Oh boy. Uh, you know, I, I, I realized that I had never really, I don't think I had ever really grieved the death of my father because I was medicated so quickly after he died that it just kind of stopped that grieving process. And for me, a lot of that grief had turned into anger and my father had a huge temper as well. So it was, it was modeled for me to be angry. And I'd always felt like I was angry and stuffing it, but it wasn't until I got off the antidepressants that the anger really started to come out. And it felt so dangerous that it took a long time for me to, I think one, I basically had to be outwardly angry enough to sort of get it all out. And it just, the, the, the volume of anger was so fast and it would feel like it just regenerated every time I had you know some sort of outburst I guess is what you can call it I mean I found different ways different outlets but it, it took a long time to come to the realization that I was not an inherently angry person and that that anger was just a manifestation of many emotions and experiences and that I had to learn to control it much in the way that I think a toddler has to learn to control themselves. I had a lot of shame around the amount of anger I had. Um, I felt like that was kind of the only thing my father had left me in a way that, you know, he just up and died. And then the legacy was just that this, like awful anger that had gotten passed down through that side of his family. Um, I had to learn not to be scared of it. And to understand its purpose and to really just treat it with compassion, which felt very ugly a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, those those things that we avoid tend to always burn our house down. Well, the know? things we avoid are also the map. They're also the way out. Exactly. Yeah, they're the yeah. sign. For me, <clears throat> when, I was, when I was in my grief, well, still am, like I guess you always yeah. are, but the hardest, like initially a couple years in, I was attending these suicide loss survivor support yeah. groups. Mm -hmm. And a couple people were sharing that when they lost their loved one, they felt relief. And I was like, the fuck you talking about? Mm -hmm. How on earth are you relieved that your sibling is dead? Something's wrong with you. I can't come to these groups anymore. You guys are, mm -hmm. no, it's not for me. And then obviously I thought about that at length for like the next long time. And I'm like, oh, that's yeah. exactly what I feel, you know, because when you're when you're in the midst with someone that you love so much and you see them struggling all the time mm -hmm. and there's hospitalizations and there's police being called and there's attempts and there's all these things. And then you try and live your life like I was living in a different state than my sister. And it's like always feels like the black cloud that sort of looms over your head. Like, is this the day? Is this the day? Is this the day? And then it is actually the day. And then you are angry and, you, you know, you feel shame and guilt, like, what could I have done? All of these normal emotions that you feel. And then the big one pops up like, oh, I guess I, I guess there is a feeling of relief. Now mm -hmm. I can, like, take a breath. 
and like I don't have to worry every single day. It doesn't take away the fact that I still miss her and I love her and a lot of feelings can exist at the same time, which is also something that I've learned, um, especially like going to family functions and stuff. Maybe you feel the same way. But that one was like a big one that I was avoiding for a while. And when I felt it, I also felt relief that I finally could come to terms with relief. And so that was <laughs> that was sort of an interesting, an interesting journey for me. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, my, my dad died suddenly of pancreatic cancer. So it wasn't it wasn't that I didn't I didn't have that level of worry day to day. But I've, you know, kind of experienced that in different ways where you're just one day you realize that there's a blessing in having the questioning and that their suffering be done. Yeah, there is. You know, that it's just hard because right? it's like you want you want them back and want them here right now, but you know, some people are suffering for a really long time. And, you know, it's just like a it's a it's a complicated question. Someone who can philosophize it better than me maybe can answer it for you. But uh, anyways, what do you um what do you think about self love to uh, make another great transition? <laughs> self love, uh, you know, I really. Honestly, I never think of it as self-love. I think of it, I always have used the word self-compassion. Mm. Um, simply because I think for a long time, I couldn't really feel that compassion for myself or anybody else. Whereas I could feel love. Like I love my dog, man. You know, like I knew what it was like to love my dog. Um, but I had trouble feeling compassion and one of the, you know, kind of therapeutic techniques that I used was to learn how to give compassion to yourself and the way that a mother might give compassion to their child who scraped their knee. And that that was a big game changer for me to be able to basically have that level of respect for myself. And that, I think once you clear out all the crap, it kind of naturally creates love. I almost feel like I don't have to. I don't have to work to love myself at all <laughs> anymore. I just it just is, which I think is that is what love is, in pretty much all forms. Yeah. When you were when you were in your twenties and you were <clears throat> uh, on all these medications, what were your relationships like? Because I know your sort of emotional side is gets a little blunted mm -hmm. um, with all of these drugs. Were relationships good or bad? Were they difficult? What was going on there? Romantic relationships were more or less non-existent. I I, I would go on a couple dates here and there, but I I really didn't have any. I had I had a I had a a relationship that lasted a couple months when I was about twenty three, and then basically didn't have another one until I was thirty one. There's some dating in between. A big part of it was I I couldn't couldn't really connect to other people it just wasn't it just it wasn't I, let me rephrase i couldn't connect because there wasn't any curiosity one of the things that the drugs really affected was my curiosity and creativity so if, if you're not curious about the world if you're not curious about other people's experience in it you kind of by definition can't have a particularly meaningful romantic or even a platonic friendship, because you have to have a level of curiosity about the other person in order to form connection. And I just didn't. So, because I wasn't curious about anything. And again, I just thought that who I, that's who I was. I thought I just was apathetic and blasé and I was born that way. Um, I did have, I had a business partner for many years that was, that was not easy. It was a very difficult relationship for both of us. And I've wondered many times if I hadn't been medicated, if I would have not entered into that partnership, because I think I might have been more aware of the emotional difficulties of it in the early days. But then once I got into it, you, you know, your business partners, it's very hard to get out of that when you're running a business together. Um, and, you know, I, I did, I do have some friends that I made at that point who we did, we we we're still connected today and they they knew what was going on when i was in withdrawal they were kind of you know those those trench friends who really stick with you but my relationships now are very different because in addition to a curiosity that i didn't have i'm also very attuned to 
who makes me feel good and who doesn't. So I don't spend I don't spend time with people who don't basically add to you know if you make me tired then we don't really spend a lot of time together. I need to be around people who lift me up. Um and vice versa. I mean the mark of a good relationship is that you do that for each other. I couldn't feel that in my 20s. I couldn't I couldn't discern who was taking energy versus giving. Now I can, and so I'm significantly pickier, but the quality of my relationships is much better. Was there a relearning process of trying uh, on relationships or when you started feeling more emotions? <laughs> I know there were, you, you dealt with some very, very intrusive and violent side effects, but yes. what was that like? Well, um, so I, I was not... When I was going through withdrawals, I didn't tell too many people about it. I was especially not talking about the intrusive and violent thoughts because there was so much shame around it. Mm -hmm. And I kept that quiet for a very long time. I probably didn't start to really openly talk about that until the past couple of years. Um, I knew that even when I wrote about it in the book, I was worried about giving it to some people who were close to me because I was still filled with shame about what I was experiencing. And, you know, briefly, these are just the kind of intrusive, violent thoughts about hurting yourself or other people that come up really suddenly, kind of like um, the best way I can describe it is I know most people, if you drive, if you've been on a highway and you might think to yourself, what ha- well, what if I just drove the car right into the median or off the bridge? It's just a thought that pops in and you kind of say to yourself, where did that come from? <laughs> it's very old. It's, it's destabilizing. Um it was like that for me, but all the time and triggered by other people, just like literally their faces, just seeing their face. So it, it, it was awful because there was just so many terrible things that were running through my mind. And this is, this is something that happens to people in withdrawal. I'd never experienced it before. If I had told my psychiatrist about it, I was worried she was going to deem me a danger to myself and put me on an involuntary psychiatric hold which is how I could have gotten, you know, diagnosis of multiple things. And so I just kept it in. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I was not really, I didn't tell anyone about that when I, when it was happening. Um, but I did meet someone. I met someone about a year after I had gotten off all the drugs and you know, we're not together anymore, but God bless that man because for like a good five years he he basically helped me come back online is the Mm -hmm. best way I can describe it because I had entered into a relationship with him at a time when the only frame of reference I had had for being an unmedicated person was as a 14 year old child and I was a 31 year old woman so I I had to not just relearn but learn a lot of things about myself and about how to connect with other people, how to deal with other people, how to, I had to learn why I was responding to things in the way I was because it wouldn't always make sense. And, you know, he would, he was very patient and he was a huge, huge help and a huge um, part of my life for a long time. And I'm, you know, we're not together anymore, which is absolutely the right call, but for the time and place we were, he, I had, I had to navigate that. And thank God I had a supportive partner to do it. Because a lot of people don't. They lose relationships during something like this because, I mean, I was a different person when I was medicated than when I wasn't. So if you get into a relationship when you're medicated and decide to come off of them, sometimes people wake up one day and say, wait, I'm not the same person. I wouldn't have made these choices. But here's the life I chose. You know, that can create some real tension in relationships. Yeah. Well, kudos to that guy, man. That's a special thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, I have the same thing in my life. Like I, I'm, I'm getting married next year. <clears throat> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but an ex of mine was I was dating a girl when my sister passed away, and after like you know, two or three years, I was like, wow, that that person who I'm no longer with, like, actually saved my life. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't ask to be the first person I told or to have to take care of me or to hold me or to deal with all of the things that I was dealing with and then lay them on her at her feet mm-hmm. like as a couple 27-year-olds or 20 – I don't remember how old I was. Well, I guess yeah. five years ago, 28. That's good math. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, so then you think about those, those, those people that are in your life for a very, very important part of time 
Yeah. And like, wow, like the, the gratitude I have for that is, mm-hmm. is immense. And I, you know, I think about her often in a very powerful way. And I, I even tell my fiance about it. Like, uh, and I, I think that's cool, but yeah. Anyways, that just made me think of that. After yeah, your story. It, it's not a one way street though. You did something for her. I don't know what it was. I know that I, my presence in my ex's life was really important too. So yeah. Yeah, kind of thank you for about that. it. Yeah. <clears throat> did you uh did you ever expect your life to be here doing this thing? I don't know. I've always kind of been on the spotlight in some level. I was grew up as a very serious ballet dancer, so I was used to being on stage and I've always been comfortable public speaking, like performing. So in some ways it feels natural. I, I never ever thought I'd be talking about this topic. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I'm a chef by trade. So I think for a long time, I was like, Ooh, maybe, maybe I could be the next food network personality. That was kind of where I felt like I'd do well for a long period of my life. And now I don't want to do that, but I'm still, still often on camera talking to people. Mm -hmm. Well, I am glad that you are doing the work you're doing. So Thank you. Thanks for sharing your story. Um, it's immensely powerful. Like, it's no small thing. Um, you know, and sto- stories are what shape us because that's mm-hmm. what gives people hope. That's what gives people permission to do the thing that you did because you're just like them and we're all just like each other, just trying to get through the day and trying to make things work and be our best selves. And then you read this book or you hear this podcast and you're like, well, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I could do that, you know? And it's like, <laughs> or, well, it's, fuck, something's got to change. <laughs> Yeah, or something, right? I can make a change or I'm capable or, you know, I'm I'm not alone in this struggle or whatever whatever the, the thing you think of. But, like, that's the power of story. They've been around for our whole lives. And, you know, so I think that's really important. And I have uh, one more question to ask you. Sure. Speaking of Tim Ferriss, this is a famous yeah. question from his podcast. So maybe okay. if you listen, you know the question. But if you were going to put a billboard up and millions mm-hmm. of people were going to see that billboard, uh, what would you put on it? Oh, Lord. You know, it's funny. I... I, I, I dream about being interviewed by Tim Ferriss and I've thought Same. about, I have thought about what I'd say to this question. I've had answers at some point, of course, now, um, you know, honestly, I, what's coming up now is I, I think it would be something along the lines of, um, this is a bit, this is quite a statement, but something along the lines of identity is the most dangerous concept ever invented. I think that every problem in human history has been because of this absolute chokehold onto identity. And, you know, for me, the way it manifests in my work in mental health is I just, for, for 15 years, I had the identity of a depressed person. And it's because that was who I was, I couldn't ever get out of that. It was too scary. It was too, it was too much. Who would I be if I wasn't depressed? And I just, I just see in a lot of the conversations we're having and, you know, the fact that we can't go two minutes without some war over something. It's just, you know, ideology, all the political strife. I, I think that this obsession with identity and finding who you are is just dangerous and misguided because at the end of the day, we are none of those things. And if, we are, you know, we are, we are souls having an experience on earth. That's who we all are. That's it. And if, if you're so stuck on whatever identity you've chosen to be attached to, how is that ever going to grow or change if it's the most interesting thing about you? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think if we could let that go a little bit and just accept that we're all just, we're all just having experiences we would find a lot more inner and outer peace. Yeah. Beautiful. I stumbled upon what I think is a pretty good. Well, at least it resonated with me, a definition of identity and it was repeated beingness. And I was like, uh, I can, I can get that because it's like, who are you being? And mostly who are you being is like, what values do you represent? And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. that's nothing to do with, with job or title or anything. Yeah. It's like, I am caring, honest, compassionate resilient zesty like that's that's my identity outside that's it and that's the human experience that's how i want to show up that's everything you need to know about me 
my job isn't yeah. important, you know, but so I thought that was, that was cool. And that's, that's how I frame like I, my identity. Like yeah. did I today did I, was my, what, how was I being? Okay. I mm -hmm. was kind and honest and I, I felt like I had a lot of zest and I was mm -hmm. grateful and all that stuff. So for me, that that's what lined up, but. But if on a day when you're cranky and short tempered and frustrated, is there then a bit of a self you know, is there a bit of an attack on the self because you weren't living up to your identity? Maybe for some, for me, I just say, okay, that needs a little bit of work. All good. You know, cause I've been, I've been thinking about this for a while. Cause as an athlete, I was very self-critical, Yeah. I, you know, had a bad game. I'm the fucking worst player in the world. Yep. But also that was my chip on my shoulder. That would drive mm -hmm. me to go to the batting cages for the next three or four hours. So I wouldn't have that yeah. fucking terrible performance the next day. But you learn that that's not a sustainable way to live. That's not really, really how you reach excellence. So just being like, okay, I'm, I'm striving for this identity. I'm striving for these values. If I fall short of the mark, okay, what needs a little bit of work? That for me is, is like, like so freeing and nice. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but, there's you flexibility know, in that. What's that? There's flexibility there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it may not work for everyone, but it's definitely helped me in, in sort of the journey that I've been on. So good. Glad to hear that. Yeah, but thanks, Brooke, man. You're you're awesome. Doing great work. Everyone should pick up the book. It's been out for a year. Um, you're also on tons of other podcasts where they have other different conversations than this. But if you want more Brooke, she's uh, got a website and uh, her Instagram. So that's the best place to find her, right? Yep, you can find me at Brookseem, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M, all over the internet. That, yeah, that, that's me. Sweet. Cheers. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to that episode with Brooke Seam. What idea stood out to you the most? What idea resonated with you most deeply throughout that episode? And if you enjoyed that episode, please share with a friend because the podcast grows from people like you sharing it with people like you. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple, or even on Good Pods. But the absolute best way to support this podcast is by becoming a supporter through Patreon. Patreon directly supports me, this podcast, and my mental health nonprofit called You Are Loved. So click the link in the show notes. Check out which tiers might work best for you and become a supporter of this podcast. But most importantly, most importantly, above all else, please, please take good care of yourselves and others. And I'll see you next time. Lots of love. Cheers.